Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 257, and we are recording on November 10th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> How to make words. I, you know, we've been having this problem for a few months, how to make mm-hmm. words. This week, it's for different reasons. Right. It's like shock, not shock, kind of shock. I don't know. Yeah. Now, for me, it's more of a like, well, what do I do with my brain now? <laughs> yeah, I was telling Amanda before we started recording. And now I will tell you all that like my panic brain has just latched on to the like new potential problems. But I will take that over the other potential problems that would have happened had the election gone the other way. Any day. I will take it any day. Yes. 1000%. So, you know, if I'm going to be panicked at something, I'd rather be panicked about this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel pretty good. I don't think like my my objective brain knows that there's very little that he can do to stop what's happening from happening. And what he is trying to do is all functionally nonsense. But there's always still, you know, I think if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that (laughs) anything can happen. So there's that little part of me that's like holding on, not able to relax until we watch him walk out of the White House in January. But for the most part, I feel pretty good. And I'm like very relieved and all of that. Have a huge spiritual hangover. We'll see what happens with that. Spiritual hangover, the name of this show. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm actually going to type that right now. Spiritual hangover as the title of the show. Okay. So for those of you who are new here, hi, this is not a politics podcast, unlike what you might have gathered from the last three minutes. This is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So how the show normally works is you write into us with your reading recommendation requests, whether you need them for yourself or for a gift or a, your book club or whatever. You can email them to us at getbooked@bookriot.com, or you can leave them in the form, uh, which is in the bottom of the show notes on the site. If your question is time sensitive, especially if it's like holiday related, because we're getting into that, please put that in the subject line of the email. If you use the form, just put it in big letters in the first line so that we can get to it on time. We ask for your email address because if we've answered your question on the show already, we will email you an answer instead of repeating the question. Okay. We have one bit of feedback from Isabel who says, I had some suggestions for the listener looking for historical fiction set in Italy. One of my favorite authors from a few years back is Sarah Dunnant, and she has a number of books set in Renaissance Italy. My favorite is Birth of Venus, following a young woman who wants to be a painter in Florence during the fall of the Medici family and the rise of hmm, Savonarola. I don't know what that is. But she also has In the Company of the Courtesan, which follows a Venetian courtesan, Sacred Hearts, which looks at the lives of nuns in Ferrara, and two books about the Borgias, Blood and Beauty, and In the Name of the Family. So those are Sarah Dunnan is that author. Thank you, Isabel. All right, Jen's going to read us our first question. We will hear from our sponsor, and away we will go. All right, our first question is from Anya, who says, I'm looking for a book for my mom, who's an avid reader, and she has a specific request. She's looking for a book, quote, to build my self-esteem, how to communicate my thoughts, just feel better about myself overall, unquote. My mom is deaf and has struggled with her self-esteem my whole life. Raving about therapy to her has only gotten me so far, and after a recent conversation, we thought maybe some books could help. 
Here's the thing, we don't want any self-help recs. We find a lot of those books to be mostly full of hot air and privilege. Instead, I'd love to get some recs of memoirs, essay collections, or even novels that deal with things like self-esteem, communication, etc. Must be written by a female author, preferably a woman with a disability, a woman of color, or a queer woman. My mom has gotten increasingly liberal over the years, so bonus if the book also touches on ideas of gender and or ableism and how they contribute to some of the struggles she's been having. All right, what a question. Before we dive into our recs, let's take a moment for a sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and series from Chloe Walsh. So Tommen's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsey Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsey, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild-at-heart childhood best friend. So The Boys of Tommen series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tear jerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so disability books that are not self-help hot air. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, So I pick Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And I I feel feel you all out there being like, Amanda, that's self-help. But I don't agree. I don't agree with you. So Untamed is Glennon Doyle's memoir, which she wrote after her first book, Love Warrior, which if you follow Oprah, you probably remember that was a big uh, Oprah pick a couple of years ago about Glennon, who was at the time a Christian influencer whose husband had cheated on her several times and who was trying to work through that in her family. And then she met Abby Wambach at a book event. Abby Wambach, of course, is a world famous soccer player and fell immediately in love, left her husband and married Abby Wambach. And now if you follow them on Instagram, you know that they have this beautiful, lovely, blended family family. She's still very close to her ex-husband and all of that. Now, this so this is the the memoir um, that Glennon has written here is from like the point at which she meets Abby and then has to start dismantling her life in order to 
leave her husband, come out to her family, leave her church, and marry a woman. And it's, you know, Abby Wambach is famous. She's got lots of endorsements. I don't, they're very financially privileged. I'm not saying that they're not. But Glennon has a lot of mental illness that she struggles with. She has an eating disorder. And this was not a simple or easy choice for her to make or a process for her to go through. And in order to do that, she had to do a lot, a lot, a lot of work around confidence and around the idea that she, as a human person, knows what is best for herself as a human person. And that sexism and ableism and the ideas that she was brought up with from her family and her church do not get to override the things that she knows are right for herself. So it's a memoir about, you know, one woman meeting someone who she falls in love with, but it's also a memoir about a middle-aged woman discovering her own strength and that her own inner voice is actually the only authority she has to care about. And I think that that's very helpful, especially for somebody who, see how it sounds like, you know, you said that your mom is struggling with self-esteem her whole life. And I, I completely relate to like raving about therapy has only gotten you so far. And I think that this this book is is like, it's like therapy in a memoir <laughs> almost. It's hard to kind of encapsulate. But if you've got a person who is dealing with self-esteem issues and confidence issues and issues that are at an intersection of having disabilities, being told that you have to be a certain kind of person and not eventually wanting to be that kind of person, I think this book is super, super helpful. So that's Untamed by Glennon Doyle. I picked, you said you were open to fiction. So I picked an anthology of stories, uh, The Right Way to Be Crippled and Naked, which is edited by Sheila Black, Annabelle Hayes, and Michael Northen. And I picked this because it is uh, fiction all about disability, but also not about disability. All of the writers are disabled in some way or another. Maybe it's mental, physical, emotional, whatever. And all of these stories are the stories that they want to tell. So some of them do center around their particular disability or the character's particular disability, but some of them don't. Like some of them are, you know, about life and whatever, you know, some of them are mysteries. One of them is like a sci-fi story. Like there's all kinds of different perspectives here, including those from uh, deaf and hard of hearing folks, blindness, physical deformity. Like there's all of these different aspects of disability that get approached in this collection. And I feel like, I mean, the goal of this collection, you know, as stated by the editors, more or less, was to give room for disabled authors to, you know, tell the stories that they wanted to tell and also to unlock new ways of seeing themselves. Like the society tells us a lot of things about disabled people that are not true and, you know, marginalizes them in all of these ways. And so this collection is meant to be a reclaiming of the narrative. Like what narratives does the disabled community want to tell and put out there? And how do you reclaim your own narrative from the marginalizations that society has forced upon you, which is, you know, part of what it sounds like your mother is dealing with. So I feel like this hope, my hope is that this anthology will be very affirming and um, that there will be all different kinds of perspectives in here that can help her consider, like, what specifically she's struggling with and why and maybe give her new ways of seeing herself or, you know, seeing the impact of these damaging societal narratives on her that she can start unpacking them. Um, and I think fiction is is honestly a great way into that because it's less preachy in a lot of ways than, you know, self-help books that are like, now do this. It's like, no, here's a story about somebody struggling with their own stuff. And like, you can take what you need from it. 
So again, that's The Right Way to Be Crippled and Naked, which is an anthology edited by Sheila Black, Annabelle Hayes, and Michael Northern. All right. Our next question is from Marilla, who says, Romances are one of the few things I'm able to read right now. I work with human rights issues, and coupled with the pandemic and gestures at the world, these books provide happy feelings, feel-good moments, great humor, and the hope for a real-life H-E-A. Tessa Dare, Lisa Kleypas, Sarah McLean, and Courtney Milan have been on my Kindle for the past few months. However, reading historicals has also meant virgin or inexperienced heroines for the most part. I was wondering if you have any recs on historical romances with heroines with more knowledge, experience, and agency in that area. Bonus points of the story deals with second marriages, as I've been doing a course on the villainous women of fiction, and the second wife or stepmother is commonly portrayed as an evil figure. Um, okay, I would love to take that class, just saying. <laughs> so I'm going to keep going. I picked The Rakehest by Scarlett Peckham, which comes with trigger warnings for domestic abuse and alcoholism. And this both has an ex- sexually experienced heroine and a second marriage. So yay. So Serafina is the heroine and she is a mm, how to like a very infamous radical feminist celebrity libertine (laughs) of Regency England. Um, And she has when the book opens returned to her family home. She her parents are dead. She's returned to her family home in order to write her memoirs. Her house is like in a lot of disarray, both literally and figuratively. It's like falling apart. Um, She is planning to write her memoirs, which will be explosive because she's going to expose the man who ruined her when she was a young woman. And this man is very powerful politically, very wealthy. uh, And the proceeds from her publishing of these memoirs she's going to use to further, you know, the causes that she has taken up for feminism. And along comes a handsome Scottish architect named Adam, who is widowed and has two children and has moved in, you know, the neighborhood because he's been hired by one of her neighbors to like fix some stuff around the house. And they meet and there's like, you know, sparkity sparks, but he's very much like, uh, I have two kids. You're super famous for like having sex a lot. And I really cannot. <laughs> like I'm trying to make a career here for my children and I need rich conservative people to like me. So I need you to like not so much with the with the kissing of my face. And she's like, yeah, but wouldn't it be like super fun for just like a month? And he's like, actually, yes, I am into that. <laughs> so they have they come to this agreement. that They're going to have this no strings attached kind of fling while he's in town doing this job. Hopefully no one will notice. So his future career prospects won't be like all ruined. Of course, that is not what happens. Strings do become attached and people do notice. And then all kinds of hijinks ensue. I will say that this is like heavy for a romance. There's a lot of trauma in for for all of the characters you know he's a widow widower so this is she would be his second wife if they were to end up together which like it's a romance i don't grumble 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 you know and so it's not like super light and funny i wouldn't say but it is very entertaining um and a really really fast read and adam is just uh cinnamon roll like you just want to like squish his face i assume he has a beard maybe he does in my head he's got one i just want to like pull on it you know Anyway, so that's The Raycast by Scarlett Peckham. <laughs> <laughs> I did enjoy that book a lot. Oh. Just want to give it a tug. <laughs> yeah. So I picked The Care and Feeding of Waspish Widows by Olivia Waite, which is the second book in her Feminine Pursuit series. We were all about the first book. And obviously I maintain, you know, that The Lady's Guide to C- Celestial Mechanics is great. But there was no way I wasn't going to love this one even more because one of the heroines of this book is a beekeeper, (laughs) a village beekeeper, like hello (laughs) wheelhouse. And the other is a woman who she runs a printing business and her husband has died. 
And her son is like, you know, growing up and like, you know, she's kind of trying to train him to inherit the family business. But he like keeps hanging out at radical coffee shops and like wanting to print, you know, things that could get them shut down for libel. Like so she's trying to balance, you know, keeping her business afloat and also the radical leanings, the increasingly radical leanings of her son. And then also one day she comes in to the warehouse and like there are bees, like there are bees everywhere in her warehouse. She has no time for bees. Like she is a very busy woman. She does not have time for this nonsense. But somebody's like, well, just get a beekeeper to come and take them. Like you don't have to kill them. You just get a beekeeper will come and take them away. And she's like, great. Somebody find me a beekeeper. Enter <laughs> Penelope Flood, who uh, lives like in a little tiny town not too far away and is just kind of like hanging out. Uh, and she is actually married to a sailor. But there's reasons why. I mean, he's gone all the time. And, you know, they kind of have an arrangement. I'll leave it to you to read the story and find out the specifics of this arrangement. But Penelope is like, hey, late print lady, like, what's up? And they, you know, sparks fly, et cetera, et cetera. But both of them are so, like, they are, they are middle-aged. They are, they just, they're not, they're so pragmatic and, like, don't have time for nonsense. But they're also like, oh, feelings. Like, what are, how, do I still remember how feelings work? Like, how does this work? It's really sweet and lovely. And the other thing that's so interesting about this novella is that it does, because of, especially the son's radical leanings, you get a taste for some of the politics of this era that I, like, did not know about, but that are, like, legit historical things that I had no idea. And, you know, there's actually, like, a protest in this book. In this historical romance novel, there is a protest. Mm. It's amazing. Uh, It's really fascinating. And the two of them, like, argue about all what's going on politically. And it's it's just, like, refreshing to see that on the page in various ways. Um, and I just I just love, love this book. So there and, and it is sort of like, you know, they have to deal with their grown children's feelings about this relationship. But that's like it's not it's not as stepmothery as you want. But I still think you will love this. So, again, that's The Care and Feeding of Waspish Widows by Olivia Waite. All right. Our next question is from Adrian, who says, something I'd like to do during the long pandemic winter is spend some time planning new landscaping and flower gardens for my yard, which is nice enough but lacks flair. I'd like a couple books to read to inspire and educate me and also make me think of sunny, warm days. I'm a gardening novice, so please, nothing too advanced. Ugh, I love this question. Okay, Amanda, I'm going to stop talking for a minute, though. All right, look, I picked the secret garden. <laughs> like, that's just what I did. And I'm not sorry about it. And I'm not kidding. Go read The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. I, I'm not talking about the movies, although you can watch the movies. That's perfectly fine. But the book, look, I've reread this book so many times. And it is, surpri- maybe not shouldn't be surprising because it's in the name, but it is surprisingly gardening centric. Like, I don't think I need to explain the plot of The Secret Garden to you. But just in case, quick summary, young girl who lives in India is orphaned. Her parents die of like, I think it's the scarlet fever or something. And she has to, she's, she's orphaned. She has to move in with her uncle who lives in this dilapidated old manor house on the moors of England. She's completely alone and is left to like fend for herself in, in this dark and drab house. Uh, and she discovers a locked garden out in the grounds. She finds the key. She gets inside and like other kids appear. Just, you know, stuff happens. More stuff happens. There's more kids. She grows up. She turns from being a terrible brat to being like kind of a nice person. But the garden part. Okay, so... It starts when she finds the garden, it's winter, right? So like she, everything looks dead and she does, it's all very much a metaphor for like her part. 
Everything looks dead, but it's just hibernating, waiting for someone to come tend to it. <laughs> heavy handed, heavy handed. But the most of the beginning of the, or the, I guess the beginning once she gets to the to the garden and starts to actually explore it is like surprisingly horticultural. Like I learned so much about how to prune roses, which I knew nothing about because I don't have roses, and why would I need to know that? And then that when she meets a local boy named Dickon who uh, you know lives around the moor, his mother is employed or his sister rather is employed at the house. And they become friends, and he starts to teach her about how to care for the plants in the garden. It's a good. Tr- it's like half the book is this boy teaching this girl how to grow like dahlias in this garden. And then as she warms up, she warms up to you know being alive and not being a terrible person. And uh, the weather warms up, and then the garden starts to bloom, and he, he you know furthers her education in that regard. So it's like surprisingly garden centric. I think it's also very inspirational. When I first read this book when I was a kid, I immediately went outside and like claimed a corner of my yard from my mother and made her let me quote unquote garden in it, which meant I just like tore a bunch of stuff up. It was not productive at all. But it is inspirational. It's going to make you want to get outside. And I think the fact that it starts in the winter when everything is dead and kind of gross looking and like wet and yucky, but she's still like into it uh, will help you push kind of through the pandemic winter part <laughs> until you get to a period when you can actually go outside and be productive in the garden. But as I learned from The Secret Garden, you can be productive in the garden in the winter. Thank you, Francis Hodgson Burnett. I'm not kidding. Go read The Secret Garden. Okay. <laughs> oh, love it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I first of all, I feel you, Adrian. I literally this morning was sketching out some plans for my garden for next year. So I am with you. I am also, and I know y'all, I know we've talked about this book before, but you need to read it in this context. Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I am rereading it right now, like a chapter in the morning, because Milkweed put out a beautiful gift edition. I mean, it is freaking Mm. gorgeous. And also my brain needed like something restful in the mornings uh, before the onslaught of the news. And it's making me have all of these interesting thoughts about gardening in a way that I didn't the first time I read it. And so the reason I'm recommending it to you is because, so Braiding Sweetgrass is by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who has been trained as a botanist, um, like PhD, whole nine yards. But she's also a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. And she uh, is working on braiding together, hence the name of the book, Mm -hmm. indigenous wisdom about plants and ecology with what she has learned in the Western scientific tradition. So what this book makes me think about in terms of gardening is not just like, what can I grow? But like, why should I plant it? Like, there's all kinds of interesting things that she talks about, you know, companion planting and, you know, the story traditions of her tribe and about Sky Woman who like, you know, falls and what she brings with her and what gets planted on Turtle Island. And it's just so thoughtful about like, what plants are there? What plants cooperate together? Like, how do they cooperate together? And what do they bring to the rest of the world? And it's really like you might have heard about like pollinator friendly gardens. But I think that this the way that Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about this perspective on plants is so helpful in grounding the research that you might then do about like, yeah, what is native or formerly native to your area, along with like what will grow in zone eight? Like these are (laughs) questions 
that like all should feed into each other. So it's I think it's useful to think about not just like I want pretty colors, but also like, well, what what was there and what grows well together and what might it bring to your area that's not currently like flourishing? There's so many interesting ways to approach a garden. And I really think that like thinking about the why as well as the like, what colors do you want and where what's the best place to lay it out and where will they get the most sun? Like the why of it is a really interesting part to explore as well. So that's why I'm recommending Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer. All right. Our next question is from Jean, who says, I recently watched The Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Tell It to the Bees. I'm looking for a book that's similar and maybe a little less tragic, although tragic works too. Okay. I picked Fingersmith by Sarah Waters because I was going for historical lesbians (laughs) as Portrait of a Lady on Fire is. And Fingersmith is like Dickens, but gay which is how it was pitched to me, and that is exactly what it's like. Uh, So it's about a woman named Sue, who is an orphan um, whose mother was hanged, I think, for thievery, something like that. It's Victorian England, and so she's, as an orphan, she was left as a baby in the care of a woman named Mrs. Suxby, who is a baby farmer. She's basically a human trafficker in Victorian terms. And she raises children to become thieves, very Dickensian, or sells them off, or whatever. She has raised Sue... As if she was her own daughter. So Sue's got like a couple of uh, like privileges in this super weird house. And all the other kids and the like adults who come and go throughout the house are what are called fingersmiths. So they're petty thieves and they are trained to do that. And that's how they kind of make a living. And one of the most like well-liked thieves in the family is uh, his name is Gentleman. He's a con man. He has succeeded in conning enough people that he's made like kind of a name for himself and has the trappings of, uh, of like financial success. And he comes to the house one day with a proposition that Sue will join him in this con. Well, she will pose as a lady ma- lady's maid to a woman named Maud, who is kind of a wealthy woman, a naive and wealthy gentlewoman who, gent- who gentlemen wants to seduce. And if Sue will help him seduce her, they will take, you know, he will marry Maud, get her money, her, her inheritance, and then ship her off to a madhouse. And then they won't have to deal with her anymore. And then Sue and gentlemen will have all this money. So Sue agrees to do it. They go to Maud's house um, and Sue you know, becomes Maud's lady's maid, essentially, and begins this process of trying to get Maud to fall in love with gentlemen. The problem is Sue gets her own feelings, and then Maud gets her own feelings, and then there's, like, a big twist that I don't want to untwist for you, because that would be mean, um, and then many, many, many more shenanigans ensue. It's very, very twisty and shocky and turny, and I cannot comment on the level of tragicness without spoiling what ha- what happens, but I'm going to say that there there's there's a tragic related twist a twisty related tragedy i don't even know how to put it just just read it just read it this is the thing you're looking for okay okay so that's fingersmith by sarah waters (laughs) amazing let me not (laughs) all right so uh i i went i i went for a little help with this because i like i've already talked about some romances which by the way you should read if Mm -hmm. you're looking for less tragic queer ladies like you know care of waspish widows is right up your alley but I wanted another option for you. And Cantoras by Carolina de Robertis is like universally recommended by Book Riot folks. And so, and one day I will get to read it. I've been on library hold for this book for like months at this point. So I've been intending to read it for a while. Haven't gotten to it yet, but I feel very confident in recommending it to you. Uh, it is. It takes place in the 1970s in Uruguay after a uh, military government has, like, crushed, you know, political dissent. And, you know, homosexuality is 
institution there's a lot of institutionalized homophobia it's not safe to be out like the queer community has you know a lot of struggles but there are five women uh, who are the focus of this story who like form literally form their own physical community as well as social community they find this almost uninhabited little cape which they sort of claim as their space. And they move back and forth between Cabo Polonio, the name of the Cape, and Montevideo, where they all live, the city that they live in. And it's it's basically about, you know, their community and, like, the relationships that they're in and as they come and go and how their, you know, lives are unfolding in all of these various ways and the ways that they relate to each other. And, and you know, it was pitched to me as basically, like, less tragic, (laughs) which, you know, it's hard to have no tragedy um, in something that's as focused on a real historical situation as this. But uh, but yeah, it's like, again, almost universally recommended um, by the Book Riot folks. And it sounds amazing. I'm all here for hearing about queer community, especially in these kinds of circumstances. Uh, So again, that's Cantoras by Carolina de Robertis. All right, let's take another sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into the light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Team. In a world where the children of the gods inherit their powers, a descendant of the Greek fates must solve a series of impossible murders to save her sisters, her soulmate, and her city. Descendants of the fates are always born in threes. There's one to weave, one to draw, and one to cut the threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. And the Aura sisters are no exceptions. There is Eo, the youngest, who uses her fate-born abilities as a private investigator, but her latest job leads her to a horrific discovery. Somebody is abducting women and setting the resulting wraiths loose in the city to kill. Now, the second book in the series, Hearts That Cut, will be on sale June 18th, 2024. This is a must-read for all Greek mythology and fantasy fans. This is dripping with atmosphere, edged with danger. Threads That Bind weaves together a gorgeous dark tapestry of mystery, fated romance, and modern myth. You won't be able to put this one down. And that comes from Alexandra Bracken, New York Times bestselling author of Lore. So make sure to pick up Threads That Bind by Kitsa Hatsapolu. And thanks again to Penguin Teen for sponsoring this episode. 
Our next question is from Emma, who says, In sad and stressful times, of which there are many nowadays, I find myself listening to Strange the Dreamer and Muse of Nightmares by Lainey Taylor on repeat. I love Taylor's brilliant prose and the beautiful high fantasy world she creates in this series that feels so full of wonder. Could you recommend something similar? If possible, I'd like it to be available as an audiobook that's not Audible exclusive. Amanda, I've been talking for 5,000 years. (laughs) Okay, I picked The 10,000 Doors of January by Alex E. Harrow because it's very, very nice prose. It is a fantasy novel. And I thought that the like literally escaping through a door into somewhere that's potentially less stressful might be appealing to you right now. Um, So January is the main character who lives in a huge house with uh, um, her father who, well, ostensibly her father. Her father is actually traveling most of the time. And this is the early 1900s. So she lives in this big house. Uh, her father works as a kind of treasure hunter for a very wealthy white man who actually cares for January. His name is Mr. Locke. And while January's father is out hunting for all of these treasures for Mr. Locke, she lives in his giant mansion. And she's mostly ignored. Like, it's kind of a benign neglect, except it's not completely benign because she is a person of color. It's not really explicitly stated where her family is from, but you know, in the early 1900s, a uh, I think it's it's like implied that I think her father is from a Pacific island. A girl of color growing up in a house with a very very wealthy old white man is like very much an oddity. Um, so she's dealing with all of that, and then she travels with him um, as he goes on about his business dealings. They end up, I think it's like Kentucky or somewhere in the middle of the country. Uh, one day while he's there meeting with uh, some of his associates, and she gets in a little bit of trouble and runs off and discovers a door in the middle of a field that when she opens, it, there's, it's like a new world. Um, so she writes it down really quickly. And then when she's discovered by Mr. Locke, he doesn't believe her, of course. Um, and she has to like shove that memory down as she gets older and older and has to learn to be like a proper lady who does what she's told. Uh, and then when she's older, she's, I think, in late teens, she finds a book in the house when she's like exploring and wandering around one day that talks about the possibility of doors being real. And it's a memoir that she's discovered of somebody who travels through these doors. And she starts to, you know, hearken back to that time she was a child where she remembered uh, discovering one of those. And like, maybe it wasn't a dream and maybe it was real. And then she goes on this grand adventure that involves 10,000 doors <laughs> and a book in a book. And it's just very lovely. It's got that, um, I feel like, Lainey Taylor's books are bookish. Does that make sense? Like they're they're not about books necessarily, but they feel very uh, like they feel like they're books about books, even though they're super, super not. And it's hard to maybe it's like an atmosphere thing, but I feel a similar atmosphere about the 10,000 doors of January, even though that literally has another book in it. But that kind of like different world escapism sort of feeling um, really richly drawn, like very uh, tactile sort of a thing. I think they have that in common. So that's the 10,000 doors of January by Alex E. Harrow. So I zeroed in on this note uh, you left about brilliant prose and then a world that feels full of wonder. And I am recommending Gods of Jade and Shadow by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. This book does come with trigger warnings for some domestic violence and self-harm. And the reason I'm picking it is because... It's set in the Jazz Age in the Yucatan, and the main character, Cassiopeia, is, you know, stuck in this very miserable situation. She and her mother are basically help in her wealthy grandfather's house. 
his oldest son, or maybe it's his grandson, I can't remember. Anyway, the guy who's, like, closest to her age is a total jerk um, and is constantly out to, like, mess with her. And she is very resentful, justifiably, of all of this. <laughs> and she's just like, ugh. I just, this is the worst. Like, how do I get out of here? And then one day, she opens a wooden chest in her grandfather's room. And, like, instead of, like, a Cinderella story where she gets a fairy godmother, she frees the spirit of a Mayan god of death, like you do, who's like, oh, I bind you to me, and now you have to help me regain my throne. Like, sorry, not sorry. This is what we're doing. And she's like, well, I guess this is better than staying here. I don't know. And so they head off on this grand adventure and Cassiopeia like gets to see the world outside of this small town and it is full of wonder as well as danger and like her getting to go and experience both the magic of you know helping to restore a Mayan god to his throne and like the jazz age is awesome. Like, it's so sort of triumphant in all of these different ways to get to see her, like, shake off the dust of this home situation that is so miserable for her and, like, fly free. And obviously, like, lots of peril happens because, you know, of course. But it's so satisfying and the world is so lush. And and I think the melding of, you know, actual 1920s Yucatan and the the magical elements that Moreno Garcia brings to it is just... Like, it's just, it's so enthralling. Um, So you will feel like you have escaped to a different time and place. And yeah, it's it's just great. Uh, so again, that is Gods of Jade and Shadow by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. All right. Our next question is from Willow, who says, I would like a recommendation for a very specific part of Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch. When reading The Goldfinch, the part I most enjoyed was when Theo was living in Las Vegas with his dad and he befriended the Russian kid Boris. I really enjoyed the themes of coming of age, found friendship, but also the sort of nihilist, drug-taking, and alcoholic teens. The overall tone of the Las Vegas bit of the novel, basically. I would love a book which has similar tones, bonus if that book involves queer characters. I've read Why We Took the Car by Wolfgang Herndorf, which I feel had a similar tone. Okay, so when I read the nihilistic drug-taking alcoholic teens part of this question, I immediately went to All Our Pretty Songs <laughs> by Sarah McCary, which is very much that Las Vegas part of uh, the Goldfinch, but queer, which I would argue that the Las Vegas part of the Goldfinch was queer, but that's a whole other thing. Anyway, okay, so this takes place in the Pacific Northwest. It's in, I think, it's Seattle. Uh, and the unnamed narrator is best friends with a girl named Aurora. And this is YA, so they're, you know, 16, 17, something like that. And they are both the children of famous musicians from before. Uh, So Aurora's father is like a um, kind of Kurt Cobain character. It's never named. Like they don't say it's Kurt Cobain, but it sounds exactly like it's grunge singer who ODs and then leaves her to become famous on her own. Um, So uh, she is, you know, like a sad girl, capital S, capital G. And the narrator has a similar story. Um, And so they've grown up together in this world of musicians um, and kind of fame adjacent and also tragedy adjacent. And they are each other's, you know, person. Um, And so they, they don't like really know how to survive life without each other, that kind of really obsessive sort of friendship. 
They party like a bit, but nothing too outside the realm of what you would expect from rock star children, teenagers, or even just normal teenagers. And then everything gets kind of upended when a musician, a boy named Jack, comes into their lives. They meet him at a party. And he's one of these um, musicians who, you know, stops time and (laughs) calls old gods out of the sky to visit upon them. And the book does have a lot of supernatural elements. It's a retelling of um, Ovid's metamorphosis. And so a lot of it is questions of whether or not things are literally happening or are metaphors. So Aurora, um, you know, falls for this boy and follows him to another state, essentially becomes a drug addict. And then the narrator has to go into Hades to literally pull her out. But is this a metaphor? Is she like just like in a hospital dreaming this? Is this a metaphor for like helping a friend overcome a drug addiction? Is she actually pulling her out of hell? Like, is she making up all of these supernatural things that she's seeing happen? Or no, and you are kind of left to decide that in on your own. Um, but the atmosphere, this found, this I don't know if you consider it found friendship because they've been friends with since they were born. But this these friends who glued to each other through their own personal tragedies, and then through you know nihilism, drug taking, and alcohol, have to pull each other out of a terrible situation. There's a lot of like romance. It's very dramatic. It's very angsty more dialed up on the angst than the Las Vegas portions of uh, The Goldfinch. But I think that this will hit the notes you're looking for. So that's All Our Pretty Songs by Sarah McCary. Love that whole series. Mm-hmm. I, I like experienced a book flashback when I was reading this <laughs> question because instantly I was like remembering this scene from Claire DeWitt and the Bohemian Highway by Sarah Gran where the main character is like on a train in the 80s as a teenager with her friend in, you know, the East Village and like they're getting up to all kinds of no good. And so that is why I'm recommending Claire DeWitt and the Bohemian Highway to you. It is technically number two in the series. You should read the whole series because it is like a really sort of gritty, dark tone all the way through in a really satisfying way. The main character, Claire DeWitt, is a detective, but like a really unconventional detective. She found this book as a teenager that like is a manual of detection that is like very like sort of weirdly woo woo, like not in like the classic new age sense, but like in even stranger ways. And it has shaped her Mm -hmm. entire life. And in this book, Oh, this is the point at which I say I cannot remember the trigger warnings for this book, and I was not successful in looking them up before the time of taping. I do recall it's pretty dark. There's drug use. There's, like, peril to women and children. Like, it's this series is dark, so just FYI. But this book is uh, Claire trying to solve the mystery of the death of her ex-boyfriend who's found dead in his home and police are like, it's a robbery, but Claire's like, it's not a robbery. Um, And then she's also like remembering for reasons the disappearing of one of her friends of this missing girl back when she was a teenager in the East Village. And so you're getting both her teenage years and this present day. And she's like extremely drugged up all the time. And sort of falling apart, like she is not a functional human being. And it's really compelling the ways in which she is not functional and the story that that uh, Sarah Grant is telling in this series. It's 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 sort of singular, but it has 100 percent the vibe that you're talking about. And I think you will dig this whole series and in particular this book because of that, the teen narrative in particular. So again, that's Claire DeWitt and the Bohemian Highway by Sarah Graham. 
All right. Our last question is from Taylor, who says, I'm trying to start a book club with my friends, but we all have seemingly different tastes that thread together in some interesting ways. Um, This is a very long question, side note, and I'm going to paraphrase. So one of the friends is into sci-fi fantasy, but not thrillers and hates time travel. Another friend wants to read more, but struggles to find books that keep his interest. Taylor likes sci-fi but not hard sci-fi. They all love Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Murderbot and have struggled to find anything else that they connect over. Okay, so I'm just going to keep talking. We've talked about this series so much that I'm just going to shout out Valerie Valdez's Chilling Effect series. If you want more funny sci-fi, like if you want to get farther into that like Murderbot Douglas Adams angle, um, the Chilling Effect series is like for sure you will. I think you would probably all enjoy it. But the book, because we've talked about that so much, the book I want to recommend to y'all is After the Flare by Deji Bryce Olakotun. This is like the day I recommend book two in series, apparently. I mean, it's that must make it Tuesday. Like it's every every show. But um, After the Flare is technically the second book in a series, but I read it alone as a standalone and it works just fine. And it is about uh, near future So, like, not super hard sci-fi, in which, like, America's in chaos, lol, and this former NASA employee has managed to wrangle a job at the only functioning space program in the world, which is now in Nigeria. Every, like, Europe, Asia, the U.S., like, all of the other major space race places are offline and not producing any functional anything. So Nigeria is now going to launch a rescue mission to the International Space Station because some astronauts are trapped up there. And they're like, they're, the Nigerian space program is basically the last hope. And so you're following Brackett as he like tries to make this sort of impossible task possible and also to adapt to life in Nigeria. He is African-American, but like doesn't exactly blend in well for various reasons, including like colorism and colonization issues. And there's also all kinds of threats to the program that are part of the political landscape of Nigeria. And so it's like it's sci-fi, but it's near future. The science is very much on the page, but the characters are really what drives this. Um, There's an amazing like team of, you know, found friends slash scientists that get together to try to make everything happen. And the characters are really what pulls this book through. So I think it will work for all three of you and that like somebody, everybody will have something to latch onto. And it's such a cool, fascinating story, especially like I don't want to say why exactly, but the ending is like one of my favorite endings of this kind of narrative in a long time. I'm dying for another book in this series. So again, that's After the Flare by Deji Bryce Olakotun. I picked Infomocracy by Malka Ann Older, which is the first book in the Sentinel Cycle trilogy. And I picked this, I kind of latched onto something that you said about your friend who books struggle to keep his interest. You said you think he gets caught up in the ideas versus the books themselves. And I think Infomocracy would be a really good fit because it is sci-fi. It's pretty soft sci-fi. So that will appeal to the other two people in the group. But it is idea heavy, but also very, very fast paced and engrossing. So he can get caught up in the ideas of this all that he wants, but he's probably not going to be able to put it down. And so this is like a near future science fiction um, where information, capital I information, which is a search engine, like a Google slash Facebook combo, terrifying thing, um, Monopoly has ushered 
the entire world out of na- the idea of having nation states into the idea of having micro democracies, which are tiny little, I got sort of nations, but not really, uh, areas of 100,000 people who elect their own governments that have their own systems of operations, a way of doing things, their own economies, everything. And then um, the individual micro democracies elect a supermajority, which is the party that oversees like, you know, the whole shebang. And when the book opens, there's an election that's coming up. Um, Heritage is the party that has won the last two elections and this is like a corporate conservative i mean it's the gop essentially uh the heritage is the gop it's not like hidden in the book uh and so an election is coming up again heritage is fighting for the supermajority. there's suspicions that they're cheating but nobody has been able to prove it and so you're fought there are like three main characters one of them is an infomocracy secret agent who's like a spy uh one of them ken is a young idealist who works for a party that um, is, you know, very idealistic and really wants to make change happen and wants to win the supermajority in order to usher in progress and all this kind of thing. And they all and one of them's an anarchist and all of these characters are fighting for their own version of an outcome in this election. And uh, of course, it's pretty relevant to the stuff that has been happening in modern life <laughs> in modern life right now to everybody. Um, so I think there's enough here. And it's close enough to the election cycle that if your book club reads this, they'll find a lot to pick apart, especially comparing it to what's going on in the world right now. Um, the thing, I th- the most interesting part of this book, these books to me was information. It wasn't even necessarily the political setup, but this idea that information, this search engine, this digital kind of overlord can get so into every aspect of our lives and that people like are into it, you know, because right now, I think we hear so much about Facebook and Google and all of it is like super negative. And in infomocracy is certainly a critique of those kinds of companies. But it's also a look at how those kinds of companies almost will inevitably infiltrate. I don't know. It's just really, really interesting. And since it's mostly, um, what's the word, espionage, uh, you won't get caught up in the like, thinky bits of it. You can save the thinky bits for when your book club meets. So that's infomocracy by Malka and Older. I think that's it. Is that that's it? it? That's our show. Woo! <laughs> Thank you so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink. Thank you for listening. And leave us, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find us on social media. I'm, well, I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson, but I deleted Instagram for a while because the election coverage was getting to me. So I'm going to be off it for a bit, but I'll be back probably in a week or two. So yeah. Where are you, Jen? Yeah, I took a social media break, um, but I'm slowly but surely finding my way back. Uh, so you can mostly find me on Instagram these days at I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to y'all next week. <laughs>